Hello, everyone. It is time to read the Des Moines Register for this Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Dennis May, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Barb DeHack. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Our statewide AccuWeather forecast calls for a mostly sunny and breezy day today with the winds from the south-southwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour, mainly clear tonight. Winds will be from the southwest again and partly sunny tomorrow. The forecast for Des Moines calls for a high today of 45 with a low of 30, mostly sunny and breezy today. On Thursday, a high of 54 with a low of 39, partly sunny and warmer. And on Friday, a high of 60 with a low of 42, mostly cloudy and breezy. So, mostly sunny and breezy across the state. Turning over first to the headlines in today's Des Moines Register, we first have an announcement to read. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into one hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m. is the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear this week's Iowa Salute. At 9 p.m., it's Consumer News. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And now again, the headlines in today's Des Moines Register on the front page. Airstrikes target refugee camp. Iowa poll, Trump is preferred to handle war in Gaza. Israelis say dozens of militants killed in Gaza attack. And under construction, three fiber optic networks spreading across the city of Des Moines. And here to get us started with today's Des Moines Register is Barb. Take it away, Barb. Thank you, Dennis. Airstrikes target refugee camp. A flurry of Israeli airstrikes on the largest refugee camp in Gaza caused hundreds of casualties Tuesday, flattened apartment buildings, and killed what the Israeli military estimated were 50 Hamas militants. Citing officials from Indonesian hospital on the outskirts of Gaza City, Reuters reported more than 50 people were killed and 150 wounded in the attack on the densely populated Jabalaya refugee camp which left craters where residential structures had been standing. Al Jazeera TV video showed dozens of people digging through rubble trying to find survivors. The Israeli Defense Forces said it struck a terrorist stronghold and killed Abraham Biari, whom it described as overseeing operations in the northern part of Gaza. The Israeli military also said Hamas had taken over civilian buildings and that tunnels under the buildings collapsed. The stronghold was used for training and execution of terrorism activities. The Israeli it 
excuse me, the Israeli military said in a tweet accompanied by a photo showing some of its targets. During the ground activity, the troops eliminated approximately 50 terrorists, as well as destroyed entrances to terrorist tunnels and weapons. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed since the initial Hamas incursion on October 7th, including at least 32 Americans, according to the U.S. State Department. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza has put the Palestinian death toll at more than 8,000. Israeli fighter jets also killed Hamas commander who directed the deadly attacks on the border communities of Kibbutz, Eretz, and Moshav Nativ Hazara in the first hours of the war, Israeli authorities announced Tuesday. Hasim Abu Ajina, commander of the Beit Lahia Battalion of Hamas Northern Brigade, previously led Hamas aerial array, helping dro- develop drone and paraglider warfare for the militants, the Israeli Defense Forces said in a statement. His elimination significantly harms the efforts of the Hamas terrorist organization to disrupt the IDF's ground activities, the statement said. About 20 residents of Nativ Hazara were killed when Hamas militants raced through the village on the Gaza border, shooting residents, burning homes, and taking hostages during the stunning Hamas attack. A security team at the kibbutz repelled the militant attack there, but one member was killed. Israel said two of its soldiers were killed in fighting in northern Gaza, the first military deaths reported since the ground offensive intensified late last week. Hamas has released four of the estimated 240 hostages held in Gaza and has said it would let the others go in return for thousands of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, which has dismissed the offer. Hamas released a short video Monday showing three other female captives. Iran said it is in talks with Hamas aimed at freeing hostages who are not involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and do not have Israeli citizenship, Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nassar Kanani said. Britain-based Media reported that Iran has been approached by several countries whose citizens have been abducted and seek help facilitating their release. Iran has repeatedly denied any involvement in the Hamas attack on Israel. We have had talks with Hamas officials and received positive promises, Kanani said, adding that Israel's constant attacks on and the bombardment in Gaza have made the talks difficult. On Capitol Hill Tuesday, protesters calling for an Israeli ceasefire in Gaza repeatedly interrupted Secretary of State Anthony Blinken as he testified before a Senate committee on the administration's emergency funding request for Israel and Ukraine. As Blinken sought to give opening remarks, the demonstrators chanted, Ceasefire now, and accused the U.S. of supporting a massacre in Gaza which has been under bombardment from Israel since Hamas launched the surprise attack. Save the children of Gaza, an unidentified protester shouted. Cease fire now. Where is your pride in America? Israel's National Security Council Chairman, Chashi Hanegbi, said the Hamas attack has changed the way Israel views its security, with strengthening deterrence to keep the militants at bay no longer an option. The massacre on October 7th did away with the illusion that we are facing an enemy who wouldn't risk his total destruction, Anagui said, in a briefing picked up by the Times of Israel and other outlets. 
He said Hamas views Palestinians living in Gaza as human dust that shielded the militants. Hanegbi also said U.S. support was crucial to Israel's goal of crushing Hamas now. To keep that support, he said it was vital for Israel to distinguish between murderers and civilian bystanders and to allow foreign aid forces to provide food, water, and medicine to Palestinians in southern Gaza. Israel has agreed to allow up to 100 trucks of humanitarian aid to come into Gaza daily, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Tuesday, but fuel is still excluded. In a CNN interview, Kirby said 67 trucks with food, water, and other necessities entered Gaza on Tuesday, the most since the convoy started rolling through the Rafah crossing October 21st, and a substantial increase over the 59 combined Sunday and Monday. It's not enough, Kirby said. It's still a trickle compared to what was going in before the war. But the Israels, Israelis have committed to allowing 100 trucks a day. It's good progress, but we have a long way to go. Kirby confirmed Israel's contention that Hamas has fuel and is using it for its own needs, such as lighting the hundreds of miles of tunnels it has in Gaza, instead of distributing it to civilians who are going without. But he also said the United Nations and aid organizations are reporting a dire need for fuel in the territory. We've got a way We've got to find a way to get more fuel in there so that the hospitals have the power, so the desalinization plants, the pumps, can keep running, keep fresh water going, Kirby said. There's a desperate need for fuel. We're working on that very, very hard. UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell said the remaining clean water in Gaza was quickly running out, which could result in more deaths. One desalinization plant was operating at 5% capacity. And all six of Gaza's wastewater treatments were not operational due to lack of fuel or power, Russell said. The agency estimated 55% of water supply infrastructure required repair or rehabilitation. The lack of clean water and safe sanitation is on the verge of becoming a catastrophe, Russell told the UN Security Council Monday. Unless access to clean water is urgently restored, more civilians, including children, will fall ill or die from dehydration or waterborne diseases. UNICEF said people in Gaza have access to less than 3 liters, or 0.8 gallons, of water a day per person to drink, cook, or wash. The minimum emergency threshold is 15 liters, or about 4 gallons of water. UNICEF spokesman James Elder called the infant and child deaths from dehydration a growing threat. More than 3,450 children have been killed in the Gaza Strip since the start of the war, and the number is rising every day, he said. Gaza has become a graveyard for thousands of children, Elder said, adding that the territory is a living hill for everyone else. Meanwhile, the nearly 672,000 Palestinians sheltering in 149 UN refugee locations across the Gaza Strip are facing increasingly desperate conditions, the UN Reliefs and Works Agency said. Ten UNRWA staffers have been killed in the last three days, bringing the total to 63 staffers killed since the war began. Anti-Semitic acts reported across Europe, in Russia, and the United States in the three weeks since Hamas and Israel went to war are bringing fear into the lives of Jewish people. A mob stormed a Russian airport over the weekend trying to stop an arriving plane from Tel Aviv.
Dozens of pro-Palestinian protesters in Barcelona last week occupied a hotel owned by an Israeli businessman. And in Berlin, vandals hurled Molotov cocktails at a synagogue last week and scrawled the Star of David on the doors of homes and apartment buildings where Jews live. The dramatic rise in anti-Semitism has the Jewish communities very much on edge in every part of the world, said Ted Deutsch, chief executive officer of the American Jewish Committee, a Jewish advocacy group. On Monday, NBC News reported the Biden administration is unveiling new efforts to combat rising anti-Semitism on college campuses due to the war. The proposal entails a partnership between the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and campus law enforcement agencies to track hate-related threats and provide federal resources to colleges, according to NBC News. Our next article from the front page... Trump is preferred to handle war in Gaza. I will poll, register exclusive. And first choice is the first choice of 52% of likely GOP caucus goers. A majority of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers say former President Donald Trump is the candidate they believe would do the best job of handling the Israel-Hamas war. In a new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll, 52% of likely GOP caucus goers named Trump as the candidate who would do the best job of handling the conflict, followed by former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley at 22%. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus scores was conducted October 22nd through the 26th by Seltzer & Company. It has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. More likely, Republican caucus scores think Trump and Haley would do the best job of handling or the Israeli-Hamas war, then pick them as their first choice for president. The conflict began October 7th when Hamas launched a series of attacks on Israel, killing more than 1,400 people and taking more than 200 hostages. Israel has launched a series of airstrikes in response, which have killed more than 8,000 as of Sunday, according to the Gaza Health Ministry run by Hamas. Over the weekend, Israel expanded its ground invasion of Gaza. Stephen Thompson, a 65-year-old Republican poll respondent from Hiawatha, said Trump's record as president shows his ability to handle the challenge. He's proven it, he said. While 43% of likely Republican caucus scores named Trump as their first choice for president, 52% see him as the best to handle the war. Trump's record on Israel as president included moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, helping broker the Abraham Accords, which normalized diplomatic relations between Israel and several Middle Eastern countries, and recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which the international community considers occupied Syrian territory. Thompson pointed to that record in explaining his support for Trump's ability to handle the war. He's already shown he's strongly behind Israel, which I am, said Thompson, an evangelical Christian who works in the aerospace industry. He's the only president that moved the embassy to Jerusalem, things like that, and then worked pretty hard at Israeli-Arab relations when he was the president. Trump also, or has promised, to reinstate his administration's controversial travel ban on predominantly Muslim nations and broaden it to ban refugees from Gaza. He told Iowans in Cedar Rapids in October that the wars in Israel and in the Ukraine would not have happened under his watch. We are closer to World War III than we've ever been, he said, and I'm the only one that will prevent World War III. 
Trump drew criticism from his rivals after the war began by bashing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, saying Netanyahu let us down when he came to helping the United States with an operation that killed Iranian military leader Qasem Soleimani in 2020. Trump later walked back that criticism. Thompson said he heard a little bit about Trump's comments, although he said, quote, I think I can tell his heart, he added that Trump sometimes says things Thompson can't agree with. Really, that was my real problem with him as president, was just flying off saying things when it didn't seem like he's really thought them through, he said of Trump. And maybe he had, but it seemed like he was shoot, ready, aim sometimes. Haley is likely caucus score's second choice to handle the conflict, with 22% saying she would do the best job. Haley has leaned into her foreign policy experience on the campaign trail and has urged Israel to wipe out Hamas. At a town hall in Central College, she recounted telling Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to finish them. On this question, Haley outperforms her overall support, while 16% say she is their first choice for president, 20 the war. The vast majority of Haley supporters, being 86%, say she is the candidate who would do the best job handling the war. This seems part of the key to understanding her rise in this poll. The world stage calls her name, said pollster J.N. Seltzer, president of Seltzer & Company. In an August Iowa poll, Haley was picked as the first choice for president by just 6% of likely caucus goers. Her 10 percentage point rise from August to October is the largest of any candidate. I really liked her foreign affairs knowledge, and I'm really impressed with that, said Laura Lee, a 65-year-old poll respondent from Titanka, who plans to caucus for Haley. And I think we really need someone that has the knowledge and the skills to be able to understand other foreign governments. Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have been adamant that they will not accept Gazan refugees and have sparred over the issue. After DeSantis suggested Haley had said she would accept Gazan refugees into the United States, SFA Fund, the super PAC supporting Haley, released an ad that begins with the narrator saying, quote, poor Ron DeSantis, he's losing, he's lying, end quote. Haley has said other Middle Eastern countries should take in refugees from Gaza. Although Thompson picked Trump as the candidate best able to handle the war, he also had praise for Haley. Quote, truthfully honest, I think Nikki Haley would do a great job on foreign policy as well, he said. I mean, she's probably got the most experience of anybody other than Trump in the field. DeSantis is named by 9% as the candidate who would do the best job handling the war, a number that falls below the 16% who picked him as their first choice for president. Just 34% of DeSantis's own supporters say he would be best at handling the war, while 32% of his supporters say Trump would be best, and 18% name Haley. Kenneth Kennedy, a 67-year-old Republican poll respondent from Kiyosakwa, named DeSantis as his first choice for president, and Haley as his second choice. But the retired farmer said Haley would do the best job handling the war. Well, she was an ambassador, and he was a governor, so I just figure she's kind of used to dealing with foreign policy, he said. Still, Kennedy said DeSantis would probably do all right. He'd do better than the guy who's doing it now, he said. 3% say on entrepreneur 
Vivek Ramaswamy would do the best job handling the war. Ramaswamy has received criticism for his comments on Israel, in part for his stance that the new USA to the country should be contingent on Israel providing a clear outline of its military objectives. Another 2% picked former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and 2% named U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. 5% say someone else would do the best job, a number that includes those who originally chose former Vice President Mike Pence before he dropped out of the race Saturday. 4% say they are not sure. Under construction, three fiber optic networks are spreading across the city. Des Moines residents want faster internet, but to get it, they're having to put up with an ongoing welter of construction. Google Fiber, Metronet, and Lumen Technology, formerly CenturyLink, are installing fiber optic internet cables throughout Des Moines in projects that are moving at different speeds and in different locations. They can't work the work simultaneously in neighbor a neighborhood because each company uses its own technology, and it would be unclear which would be liable if things went wrong on a shared construction site, said city engineer Steve Neighbor. The city has newly posted maps at facebook.com slash Des Moines Gov, charting where the work is going on. It cautions that the maps provided by the companies aren't necessarily comprehensive, so they may not show where work was previously completed or where it may, where it may happen after current phases are done. Though the work may be inconvenient and annoying, neighbors said, it ultimately promises to bring Des Moines residents faster, better service, and a wider range of options. It is good that our residents get choices, neighbor said. That's good for the health of our community. While it's painful now to have construction going on and to tear up the yards, it is beneficial to have those choices for our residents. Google Fiber started construction of its Des Moines network along Grand Avenue in October 2022. Phase 1 took the network from that trunk into the Waterbury, Westwood, and Frisbee Park neighborhoods. That work is almost complete, as is a second phase in the Woodland Heights, Ingersoll Park, North of Grand, Sherman Hill, and Linden Heights neighborhoods. Phase 3, which is underway, calls for construction in the Cheatham Park, Riverbend, Drake Park, Evelyn Davis Park, Carpenter, Mondaman Presidential, Chautauqua Park, and New Visions neighborhoods. Phase 4 is getting started. It will cover an area from Interstate 35 to Hickman Road, centered on Drake University. Google Fiber has future plans to extend its network into South Des Moines, where the company still needs to get right-of-way licenses, neighbor said. From our discussions with them, it sounds like they're going to install fiber all over the city, he said. Metronet plans to spread its network across most of Des Moines through 2023 and 2024. Pockets are complete on the north, south, west, and east sides of the city. More are scheduled to be complete by the end of the year, according to the city. The company's goal is essentially to install fiber in front of every Des Moines home, neighbor said. They've had contractors everywhere installing fiber, he said. Lumen plans to start construction of its network in 2024 in sections of the Riverbend, Drake, Sherman Hill, King Irving, Woodland Heights, Chautauqua Park, Mondaman Presidential, Cheatham Park, and Good Park neighborhoods. Its initial plan covers a much smaller area than Google Fiber and Metronets. There have been occasional internet outages amid the work, and the city has gotten a handful of complaints from people who thought the disruptions were caused by contractors who clipped existing cables, neighbors said. 
Most complaints, however, relate to work. The residents feel wrongly invades their yards, he said. Where can companies install fiber optic cable? Companies can install fiber in the public right-of-way in front of homes or within public utility easements. The right-of-way usually is a strip extending in, in from street curbs and frequently includes sidewalks. Public utility easements are five-foot-wide corridors across yards for the use and maintenance of utilities, according to neighbor in the city. Neighbors said residents often don't understand why crews are working in their yards because they are unaware of the easements. Not every property has them, neighbors said, but many do, and a lot of the time people don't know. In all, 44 companies have right-of-way licenses to install fiber in various parts of the city. As Google Fiber expands its network, it gets licenses to install fiber in more areas. Can the city stop a company from installing fiber optic cables? These are private entities that are doing this, neighbor said. We can't really deny them. But contractors must meet certain requirements under right-of-way permits, neighbor said. That includes providing notification of the work and restoring disturbed areas. If residents have concern about the work, who can they turn to? Residents can call the City's Permit and Development Center at 515-283-4200 or the Engineering Department at 515-283-4920 with concerns about issues such as restore, restoration of rights of way disturbed by the work. Those who want to know about services provided by the companies installing fiber optic internet, such as when it will become available and what it will cost, should call them directly or if they are experiencing an internet outage, they should contact their existing provider, neighbors said. Each of the companies involved in the installation projects has a website with information. Google Fiber at fiber.google.com slash coming soon. Lumen at facebook.com slash quantum fiber. And Metronet at metronet.com. How long will this last? Metronet will likely finish installing fiber in 2024, a neighbor said. The timelines for Google Fiber and Lumen are less clear, he said. We'll turn over now to the Metro and Iowa section. Headlines on the front page. Volunteers asked to help find missing Iowa, and the vehicle was found seven years ago at Ledges State Park. Ankeny looks at alternative to finding homeless. Gaza native living in Coralville in constant worry, and Des Moines nonprofit Best Buy program to build tech center for low-income teens. We'll start with volunteers asked to help find missing Iowan. Jesse Leopold was 23 when he was last seen alive in Jewel, a small town in north-central Iowa. Seven years later, an effort to find Leopold reignites with a new search of the last place his car was found, Ledges State Park, about 35 miles from his hometown. Jerry Leopold, Jess's father, runs a Facebook page where he documents his findings in regard to his son's disappearance and the attempts to find him. In one post, he reports his investigation uncovered evidence that leads him to believe Jesse Leopold was beaten, robbed, kidnapped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, and disposed of. A search of Ledges' state park, where the Jesse Leopold's truck was found, is set to take place Saturday at 9 a.m., the Boone County Sheriff's Office is seeking volunteers to help. Volunteers are asked to meet in lower ledges near the Crow's Nest Trailhead to be briefed before the search. Over the years, this case has gone 
in several different directions, the Sheriff's Office posted on Facebook. After careful consideration, it seems additional searches of the ledges and the area around it need to be considered. So who is Jesse Leopold? Jesse Leopold worked at W&G Marketing, a meat processing plant in Jewel. He had told his supervisor he was going to pick up his medication a bit before their 6.30 p.m. lunch break on October 13th of 2016. That was the last time he was seen. Jerry Leopold previously told the Des Moines Register he raised his son since he was six years old. After a split with the boy's mother, the two went fishing and mushroom hunting together and worked on their cars and around the house together. He said Jesse was diagnosed as bipolar, but often didn't have enough money at the end of the month for his medication, so he turned to illegal drugs. But Leopold said he had gotten clean of drugs and had landed a job. Boone County Sheriff Andy Godzicki said mental health could potentially play a role in Jesse Leopold's disappearance. Jesse does have a history of suicide attempts, Godzicki said. Jesse did have some mental struggles. In addition, we also have reason to believe that Jesse used LSD earlier that day. Jesse Leopold lived with two roommates, one of whom worked with him. Both of them reported not seeing him return home after leaving for work. So when did he go missing? Well, Jesse Leopold was last seen on October 13, 2016, and was reported missing on October 16, 2016. Jesse Leopold's vehicle was noticed by a park ranger at Ledger State Park, roughly a 40-minute drive from Jewel, the day after he was last seen. Jerry Leopold picked up his son's car from the park on October 16th, Godzicki said. According to Jerry, the truck was found with his boots in the back, and we do have photographs of that. The smock that he was wearing was flung over the steering wheel, and the keys for the ignition were left in the truck where it was parked there at ledges, Godzicki said. We can't confirm that because Jerry got in the truck and drove off with it prior to reporting that, but I do believe that's probably accurate because it does fit in all the strange behaviors of Jesse, just abruptly leaving his job. Leopold previously told the register he knew his son was mixed up with a threatening crowd, so he immediately swung into action when Jesse came up missing, and he found his pickup in the park. I flipped out down in that canyon. We searched the park high and low all winter, said Leopold, who is disabled. I was up and down the river near Fraser, myself, and a couple other people for weeks. Search and rescue efforts started immediately in the area where Leopold's truck was found, but Godzicki expressed doubt in the efficiency of the search conducted at ledges. There was some documentation of the search of ledges to kind of show the area, said Godzicki, who was detective at the time. Cadaver dogs were brought in, but it's unknown the quality of these dogs at the time, or, quite frankly, how well the park was searched. Godzicki said that the rough terrain of the park made it hard to focus on the search, adding that he found himself more often than not watching his next step rather than watching for evidence of Jesse Leopold. I don't know what will ever be I don't know that we'll ever be able to say that we have properly searched ledges, Godzicki said. So why are they reviving this search for Jesse Leopold now? Well, Godzicki said he'd promised Jerry Leopold that he would reopen the search for Jesse. When we look at the data, it seems that we need to. We need to return back to ledges and continue looking for Jesse there, Godzicki said. We have spent most of this time between the time of his disappearance up until now focusing on something bad happening to him. 
We spent all this time focusing on that. And it's time that we got back to focusing on where the best evidence points, and that's back to the ledges. Jerry Leopold could not be reached for comment. In a post on the Find Jesse Leopold Facebook page, he wrote the department plans to use cadaver dogs and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources while use sonar to search for his son in the park. He said the sheriff's office plans to continue searching elsewhere if the search at ledges is not fruitful. It seems as if they want to pound this out and get it done, he wrote. It would be so very nice to have this behind me and see some justice for the ending of my son's life, Jared Leopold wrote. Jesse Leopold was last seen wearing a blue shirt and blue jeans. He's about six feet tall, weighs 185 pounds, and has hazel eyes. Anyone with information on his disappearance is asked to call the sheriff's office at 515-433-4786. A Gaza native living in Coralville is in constant worry. Heartbreaking, frustrating, frightening. That's how Gaza native and 25-year Coralville resident Yazer Abudaga described the ongoing war in his homeland that has killed thousands and displaced more than a million residents, including 40 members of his close and extended family. Abu Dhaka's 84-year-old father is stranded in Gaza. An American citizen, he was visiting his daughter and one of his sons when the war began between Israel and militant group Hamas began on October 7th. Communication with his family has been scarce since resources had dwindled, Abu Dhaka said. My dad and my immediate family are lucky that they're still alive, he said. Because for the people from my extended family that were ordered to evacuate to a safer place, it was not a safer place for them, and they were killed, including little children and women. So there's no safe place in Gaza. The long history of conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, Abu Daga said, met residents of, in the Gaza Strip were only given minimum the minimum required amounts of food, water, medicine, and other supplies in the past 16 years. Gazans were largely blockaded from receiving outside resources at the beginning of the conflict, leaving many to scrounge for whatever food they could get, Abu Daga said. Some still struggle to find food and water, he said, forcing them to ration the most nutritional scraps. They've also tapped into salty well water to stay hydrated. Abu Daga has monitored the availability of medical supplies during the war as well. His father has trouble finding the medicines he needs in Gaza. His brother warned him of an elderly person who died last week from a lack of medical resources. I'm not understanding what world we're living in, Abu Daga said. This is obviously a war crime. There are citizens and they get bombed. Civilians, infrastructure, schools, mosques, churches, and hospitals are getting bombed under the watch of the rest of the world, and nobody is acting. Abu Dhaga was joined by more than 100 people, including some fellow natives of Gaza, on Friday, October 27th, in an act of solidarity on the Pentecost. They rallied to end the war while asking for peace for the Palestinian people. They chanted, free, free Palestine, free, free Gaza, and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. A chant with a controversial connection to the militant group Hamas, and one that some claim is anti-Semitic. Echoing the words of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Abu Dagas and said Hamas was not formed in a vacuum, but rather was created after decades of occupation and thus frustration. 
Abu Dhabi is staunchly against Hamas and its violent actions, but understands how some Palestinians could have been pushed toward the group. Hamas is just a symptom of the problem of injustice, and if this injustice goes tomorrow, Hamas will go the day after, or even the minute after, because nobody wants anybody to be hurt, Abu Dhabi said. It's just the way some Palestinians are venting their frustration. The group of protesters marched through downtown Iowa City on October 27th. They pledged to meet every Friday afternoon in a continued call for peace in Gaza, Abu Dhabi said. Abu Dhabi's family, now trapped in Gaza for more than three weeks, have navigated the war-torn area with caution while trying to find refuge in small apartments alongside displaced residents. He characterized Israel's language and actions so far as genocide, referencing the long-held Israeli counterattack strategy known as mowing the lawn. He also said he believes the Israelis are trying to reduce the Palestinian population and limit their demographic impact. Israeli officials are coming out and describing people in Gaza as not innocent people, human animals even. They were saying they are grass, Abu Dhabi said. They're saying they were going to mow the lawn to whack those weeds. Abu Dhabi believes that description dehumanizes residents in Gaza, saying that if roles were reversed and Israelis were under attack, the world would not be so passive. As the war moves forward, he hopes to see his family again, wishing for their continued safety in Gaza. I don't know if this is going to end any time soon, Habudaga said, and it just really makes me miserable because I don't know how things are going to end up and if my family will survive this time or not, my immediate family, my father, and my sisters and my brother and their kids. Des Moines nonprofit Best Buy program to build tech center for low-income teens. Des Moines Metro teens and young adults will soon have a new hangout spot. Oak Ridge Neighborhood, a Des Moines-based nonprofit that provides affordable, affordable housing and other services to low-income and refugee families, has partnered with a Best Buy program to open Oak Ridge Studio, a new teen tech center. Oak Ridge Neighborhood received $195,000 in grant funding through the Best Buy Teen Tech Center to build its own tech center at Mainframe Studios. The money from the Best Buy Foundation will be used to cover the costs of construction, tech products, staff, and furniture, said Kristen Littlejohn, Vice President of Development at Oak Ridge Neighborhood. Construction for the roughly 1,400-square-foot teen tech center has already begun and is expected to be finished by the end of November, Littlejohn said. A soft opening is scheduled for December 1st. Here's what else you need to know about the Oak Ridge Studio. Why is the Oak Ridge Studio being built in mainframe studios? Oak Ridge Neighborhood and the Best Buy Teen Tech Center program both share a common goal, to foster and strengthen relationships with community-focused organizations and uplift the youth that they serve. And building Oak Ridge Studio in mainframe plays into that mission, said Little John and Andrea Wood, Vice President of Social Impact at Best Buy. With the tech center inside mainframe, Little John said youth participation will have the chance to be in a, quote, collaborative space and be among creative individuals who are from their communities and can teach them, work with them, or inspire them. That aspect, she believes, elevates the Oak Ridge Studio. It makes it so much more accessible, Little John said. The Oak Ridge Studio is among Best Buy's freestanding tech centers and is the first in Iowa. 
Best Buy has so far launched 52 teen tech centers across the nation, with several locations in Minnesota and California, and plans to bump that number up to 100 by 2025, according to its website. The Oak Ridge Studio will be housed on the lower level of mainframe studios at 900 Kiyosakwa Way in Des Moines. So do you need to be in the Oak Ridge or an Oak Ridge neighborhood resident to use the Oak Ridge Studio? No, says Little John and Derek Frank, the Teen Tech Center coordinator. The studio is free and open to Des Moines Metro teens and young adults between the ages of 13 and 21, Frank told the Des Moines Register. Those are the ages that are hardest really to engage teens, Little John said. That's kind of where you start to see teens pull back and start doing their own thing. It's harder to keep them locked in. A center like this could really be a turning point for them and put them in the driver's seat and to see where they'd like to go and where they see their future headed, she continued. We hope that we can help them make that happen in a nice, positive way. Frank added that the studio also welcomes youth participants who are not enrolled in area schools or are homeschooled. So what kind of features will the studio have? Well, Frank said the studio will feature a wide range of tech equipment, including 3D printers, drones, laser cutting, virtual reality headsets and tools, and programming for robotics. A, a recording studio will be available to participants looking to launch podcasts and make their own music, and maker stations for those wanting to start their own businesses. There will be opportunities to learn photography and videography as well, Frank said. Frank, who will be a permanent fixture at the center, said Oak Ridge Studio plans to bring in guest speakers and host workshops to help participants explore different software and technology. So when will the Oak Ridge Studio open? The Oak Ridge Studio is scheduled to have its soft opening on December 1st, Little John said. Details of the soft opening are forthcoming. Though the studio hours have yet to be determined, Little John said she and staff plan to open the studio on the weekdays and weekends. She helps open the studio during the weekdays from mid-morning to the early evening, so participants who are not in traditional school settings or are in need of after-school activities can find refuge in their space. Ankeny looks to an alternative to finding the homeless. A proposed change to Ankeny City Code would help people who are facing homelessness get shelter before they are fined for camping in public places. The City Council has been discussing an ordinance that would submit guidelines for how police should respond to people camping or storing personal belongings on public property. Camping is defined as someone setting up a site with sleeping gear or cooking equipment for a temporary place to live or to use as a campsite. Camping and storing personal property on public property, like parks, public parking lots, and infrastructure sites, would be generally prohibited under the new ordinance. But before issuing a citation, an investigating police officer would first ask if the person is camping due to homelessness. If so, the officer would determine if there is space available through a public or private shelter in Polk County with an open overnight bed or with a person's family member. If no shelter is available, the officer would not issue a citation. A person would still be asked to move if shelter is available. The officer could provide directions or a ride. Somebody who does not accept a offered shelter space would be subject to a fine of up to $100 or be given community service based on a person's ability to pay. 
Shelter space would still be considered available even if a person is unable to use it due to drug use, unruly behavior, or intoxication. If shelter space is not available, officers would also not enforce prohibitions on camping or storing private property in street right-of-way that is not reserved for vehicle or pedestrian travel. An example would be the diagonal parking in uptown Ankeny, according to the city. The prohibitions would be enforced at all times everywhere else, like parks, lots, and other public properties. This proposed ordinance provides the police department with a codified tool that incorporates community policy expectations when circumstances involving camping on city property arise. City spokesperson Amy Baker said, Adoption of this code provides additional backstop and formal direction to the department and those officials that encounter these circumstances. Specific data was not available about the number of times Ankeny police have encountered people camping on public property. The council will hold its third and final vote on the ordinance November 6th. The council has passed the previous two readings of the ordinance. Father-son dead after standoff in northwest Iowa. A father and son are dead after a standoff and exchange of gunfire with law enforcement in northwest Iowa that started on Sunday night. The Woodbury County Sheriff's Office got a call at around 7.30 p.m. Sunday from 72-year-old Todd Salzberger saying his son, 44-year-old Walter Salzberger, was shooting at him as a, at a residence near Old Highway 141, Sheriff Chad Sheehan said during a news conference Monday. When officials arrived, the son was still at the scene and said there would be no peaceful resolution and made threats toward officers. The Sheriff's Office requested additional assistance from the Sioux City Police Department, Iowa State Patrol, and other agencies, Sheehan said. At 2.45 a.m. Monday, Sheehan said Walter fired shots toward the technical team trying to move in to take him into custody while on the phone with a crisis negotiator. That's when officials fired back, striking him, Sheehan said. Medical aid was provided, but Walter died at the scene. Todd also was pronounced dead at the scene, but his cause of death has or was not released. The Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations is investigating both the officer-involved shooting and the father's death. To say that last night was anything less than frightening would be an understatement, Sheehan said. It was something, as the police chief and I have spoke this morning, that we could not have imagined that we would be involved in something that was as dramatic as it was last night, for the tactical teams that were there when they came under heavy fire from the suspect. Fires were set to large hay bales in the area that Sheehan said could be seen for miles down the valley, but it has not been determined who lit them. No first responders were injured. The officers who discharged their weapons were automatically put on administrative leave per policy, Sheehan said. And a note here, work to shut down stretch of I-35 on late Thursday. Southbound I-30 Interstate I-35 will close Thursday night for emergency repairs. The southbound lanes will close between Iowa 210 south of Huxley and Northeast 36th Street in Ankeny from 8 p.m. Thursday until 5 a.m. Friday, according to a news release from the Iowa Department of Transportation. The release of the rest area near Elkhart also will be closed from 9 a.m. Thursday to 5 a.m. Friday. It did not specify what the emergency repairs are. There will be marked detour using Northeast 36th Street, U.S. Highway 69, and Iowa 210. Iowa drivers can call 511 or visit the DLT's website to access the latest traveler information on this project and more. 
And returning to national and world news, food waste problem is growing worse. More than one-third of the food produced in the United States is never eaten. Much of it ends up in landfills, where it generates tons of methane that hastens climate change. That's why more than 50 local officials signed on to a letter Tuesday calling on the Environmental Protection Agency to help municipal governments cut food waste in their communities. Uh, this is an Associated Press story, Dateline Chicago, assuming that's where the local officials were. The letter came on the heels of two recent reports from the EPA on the scope of America's food waste problem and the damage that results from it. The local officials pressed the agency to expand grant funding and technical help for landfill alternatives. They also urged the agency to update landfill standards to require better prevention, detection, and reduction of methane emissions, something scientists already have the technology to do, but which can be challenging to implement since food waste breaks down and generates methane quickly. Tackling food waste is a daunting challenge that the U.S. has taken on before. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the EPA set a goal of cutting food waste in half by 2030. But the country has made little progress, said Claudio Fabanio, who works on food waste management for the EPA. We have a long way to go, Fabiano said. Researchers say the EPA reports provide sorely needed information. One report found that 58% of methane emissions from landfills come from food waste, a major issue because methane is responsible for about a quarter of global warming and has significantly more warming potential than carbon dioxide. With the extent of the problem clearly defined, some elected leaders and researchers hope to take action. But they say it will take not just investment of resources, but also a major mindset shift from the public. Farmers may need to change some practices, manufacturers will need to rethink how they package and market goods, and individuals need to find ways to keep food from going to waste. So the, for the first time since the 1990s, the EPA updated its ranking of preferred strategies for waste reduction, ranging from preventing wasted food altogether by not producing or buying it in the first place, to composting or anaerobic digestion, a process by which food waste can be turned into biogas inside a reactor. Prevention remains a top strategy, but the new ranking includes more nu nuances comparing the options so communities can decide how to prioritize their investments. But reducing waste requires a big psychological change and lifestyle shift from individuals no matter what. Researchers say households are responsible for at least 40% of food waste in the U.S. It's a more urgent problem than ever, says Wesleyan Ashton, a professor of environmental management and sustainability at the Illinois Institute of Technology, who was not involved with the EPP reports. Americans have been conditioned to expect abundance at grocery stores and on their plates, and it's expensive to pull all that food out of the waste stream. I think it is possible to get zero organic waste into landfills, Ashton said but it means that we will need an infrastructure to enable that in different locations within cities and more rural regions. It means we need incentives both for households as well as for commercial institutions. With the problem clearly defined and quantified, it remains to be seen whether communities and states will get extra help or guidance from the federal level and how much change they can make either way. The EPA has recently channeled some money from the Inflation Reduction Act towards supporting recycling, which did include some funding for organic waste, but those are relatively new programs. 
Some local governments have been working on this issue for a while. California began requiring every jurisdiction to provide organic waste collection services starting in 2022. But others don't have as much of a head start. Chicago, for instance, just launched a citywide composting pilot program two weeks ago that set up free food waste drop-off points around the city. But prospective users have to transport their food scraps themselves. Ning Ai, an associate professor of urban planning and policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, said the report could be bolstered by more specific information about how different communities can adopt localized solutions, since preventing food waste might look different in rural and urban areas or in different parts of the country. But she was also impressed that the report highlighted trade-offs of environmental impacts between air, water, and land, something she said is not often aggressively documented. These two reports, as well as some of the older ones, that definitely shows up as a boost to the national momentum to to waste reduction, said I, who was not involved in the EPA's research. Also some more Iowa news, woman charged with neglect, abandonment, dog put down. An arrest was made in the case of a dog found abandoned on the east side of Des Moines that later had to be put down, according to Des Moines Police Department. A 46-year-old Des Moines woman has been charged with two counts of animal neglect with injury or death and one count of animal abandonment, according to a news release. Police say they expect to make another arrest. The dog was dumped from a vehicle at about 1.30 p.m. on October 12th at an apartment complex near the 3500 block of East Douglas Avenue in Des Moines. It showed numerous signs of neglect, did not have a collar, and was not microchipped. We are sad to report that due to the health circumstances, it was necessary that the puppy be humanely euthanized, the department said in a Facebook post. The chief humane officer of the Des Moines Police Department Animal Care and Control Unit found that the dog sustained injuries in the first half of the year. One of the injuries resulted in a spinal misalignment, according to a news release. The woman arrested and another person were present and its caregivers when the dog was injured, police allege. Officials allege the dog was intentionally abandoned. Also in news, WHO 13 vet Dave Price returns to airwaves ahead of caucuses. He was named Gray Television's Iowa political director. Former WHO 13 political director Dave Price is returning to local TV ahead of the 2024 Iowa caucuses. After his departure from the Central Iowa NBC affiliate in April, Price will join Gray Television as the company's Iowa political director and analyst. He will also appear on a weekly political show. While fans won't see his work on air in Des Moines, Price will contribute to Gray's eight local TV stations serving the state. So where can you find political analyst Dave Price on the air in Iowa? You can, uh, in Iowa, Gray owns KCRG in Cedar Rapids, KTIV in Sioux City, KTTC in Mason City, KWQZ in Davenport, and KYOU in Ottumwa. It also owns stations in neighboring states that cover Iowa communities, including Dakota News, now in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, KEYC in Mankato, Minnesota, and WOWT in Omaha. Price is a well-known presence in the state's political media, especially as an expert on the Iowa caucuses, which take place this presidential cycle in January. Price is the author of two books on Iowa caucuses, Caucus Chaos and Caucus Chaos Trump. In 2001, Price began his career at WHO after stints in Columbia, Missouri, and Montgomery, Alabama, 
During his time at WHO, he was the station's managing editor and Sunday evening news anchor. Price was also the host and executive producer of a Sunday community affairs show, The Insiders. We'll continue with some national news from the 50 states, Alabama. Birmingham, federal prosecutors are asking a judge to jail a state lawmaker charged with trying to obstruct an investigation into alleged kickbacks. Prosecutors tell the court state representative John Roger violated the conditions of his bond by attempting to contact a key witness. From Anchorage, Alaska, a state agency faces a backlog in processing applications for people seeking food stamp benefits over a year after it first fell behind. The Anchorage Daily News reports the backlog of applications totals about 6,000. From Little Rock, Arkansas, a new poll released by the University of Arkansas gives Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders the lowest approval rating of any governor since 2003. KATV reported her approval rating sits at 48%, according to the news outlet. From San Francisco, California, the start of the commercial Dungeness crab season in the state has been delayed for the sixth year in a row. The delay is meant to protect humpbacked whales from becoming entangled in trap and buoy lines. From Hartford, Connecticut, an ongoing saga between minor league and major league baseball teams may reach the U.S. Supreme Court. A brief filed with the court by State Attorney General William Tong decries the mistaken antitrust exemption for the business of baseball and implores the court to end the exemption. Wilmington, Delaware. The trial of a suspected serial killer accused in the deaths of several people during a violent crime spree in 2021 began with jury selection. A jury panel of 12 was selected for the trial of Keith Gibson, who is being tried for the killings of an Elmsmer cell phone store manager and a Wilmington man in separate robberies. From Orlando, Florida, officials with the state's high-speed passenger train service say they plan to add a stop somewhere along the newly opened extension between the city and South Florida. Brightline officials say they were soliciting site proposals for a station along the Treasure Coast in Martin or St. Lucie counties. From Idaho, from Wallace, Idaho, the Shoshone Board of County Supervisors has approved additional funding for a financial audit as the county seeks to get to the bottom of a $3 million overspending in recent years, the local press reported. From Chicago, police say at least 15 people were injured, two of them critically, after a gunman fired into a crowd at a Halloween party on the city's west side. The gunman allegedly fled, but authorities took him into custody. And from Minneapolis, Minnesota, two men have been injured in separate hunting accidents when they were accidentally shot by young, inexperienced hunters during the state's youth firearms deer season.